0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at com, and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better than as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog to donate either by giving to GoFundMe through PayPal, or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which trust me, is dearly needed. Today's guest is Anika Mros-Risi, the author of the Anna Banana chapter book series, the picture books Watch Out for Wolf and The Teacher's Pet, as well as a YA novel, Always, Forever, Maybe. Her essays have been published by The Writer Magazine and The New York Times. Anika plays fiddle in and writes lyrics for the band Owen Lake and The Tragic Loves. Anika grew up in Maine and spent many years in New York City, where she worked as an executive editor in children's book publishing. Anika joined me today to talk about writing from a place of pain and methods to redirect the endless feedback loop of anxiety towards something creative and productive. Need help with your book manuscript? Look no further. Freelance editor Raven Ekman offers affordable reader and developmental editing packages and is open for business. Check out a newlookonbooks.com for package details, client testimonies, and more. It's time to get that manuscript ready to query or publish. Listeners are always interested in my guests process of getting published. So can you talk a little bit about that journey for you and what it was like from going to an aspiring author to a published writer?
1: My journey is a little bit unusual in that I was actually not an aspiring author. I got my start in publishing as an editor I started at Scholastic as David Levithan's assistant in early 2002, where I worked on middle grade series and some young adult novels. And then I moved to Simon Pulse in 2007 to focus exclusively on YA. And then I spent a few years at Catherine Teigen Books, where about half my list was traditional acquisitions, a lot of YA, some middle grade. And about half of it was IP, meaning that I would develop the concept for a project and then match it with an author and then work with them to make it the best book that it could be. I was an executive editor for more than 13 years. I loved my job, I was really good at it, and I thought I would do it forever. I was not one of those editors who secretly wanted to be an author. But then in late 2011, um, 2012, I was going through a really disorienting heartbreak. Like any person who's heartbroken, there's a lot of looping, obsessive thoughts there of sort of the pain and the why and the what ifs and all of that. And I was looping on that so much and working so hard to sort of throw myself into my work to have that to do that I felt like I was becoming my heartbreak and my job. Mm -hmm. And I needed something else to sort of reclaim myself. And I felt like I actually needed something else to loop on and obsess over that was not my heartbreak or my job. And one thing I knew I was good at obsessing over and thinking about for long stretches of time was plots. So I decided I needed one of my own to think about rather than other people's that I was getting paid to do. And I'd had the Anna Banana and the Friendship Split title in the back of my mind for many years at that point. I'd come up with it when I was brainstorming titles for a new line I'd started at Scholastic called Candy Apple, which was aimed at what we then called tweens. And in the process of doing that, I was just sitting down and writing down 100 possible book titles that we could use for this line. And I wrote down Anna Banana and the Friendship Split. And I thought, that's an amazing title. It is not appropriate for tweens. It's clearly for younger readers. But it amused me. So I sort of held onto it in the back of my mind to use for something else someday. And I decided when I needed to just sit down and write something to distract myself from being miserable that it would be a perfect thing to write because at the time I was editing only YA and Mm -hmm. mostly edgy or older YA. So writing a chapter book I felt wouldn't conflict or compete with what my authors were doing. Mm. And I thought it would be keep me safe from becoming an author which was not my intention Because I was thinking of it as a single title chapter book idea, and that's not really a thing. Chapter books are almost always part of a series, Mm -hmm. and I had no intention of writing a series because I didn't want to be a writer. I just wanted to think about something else until I could get over this guy. Even though I wasn't trying to become a published author, I was very interested in sitting down and writing something because I had at that point spent... More than other people, how to write and revise their books, but I'd never sat down and done it myself. And I thought that I might learn something from that process and become a better editor from actually going through the butt in chair experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Anna Banana and the Friendship Split, you know, that title indicates right there, it's about a friendship breakup. And as I sat down and started, I found it was really, really cathartic to take all of that hurt and confusion and sadness and anger and misery that I was feeling and pour them into a raw and emotional, terrible first draft. Let my eight-year-old character feel all those things I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was even more cathartic to revise it and make it funnier and let things turn out for the friends in the end. So the more I did of it, the better the experience was, and the more I felt I was learning, and the more lessons I had from that that helped me shape how I was was talking to my authors about what they were doing, just picking up the nuance. It it didn't change radically what I thought about writing or editing. It changed how I was able to talk about it. And so once I'd finished the book and revised it, I kept going. I followed my own advice that I'd been giving to writers to years at writers' conferences and such of, you know, you finish a book, you put it in a drawer for two months minimum if you can and you think about something else and then you take it out and you're able to look at it with fresher eyes. So I did that and revised again and experienced what that was like. And then I showed it to two critique partners at the same time and tried to figure out what to do with their conflicting feedback. I kept going with it every step of the way because like I said, I thought it was making me a better editor. And eventually, I was at dinner with a friend who is also an agent, and I was telling her about what I'd learned during the process and how it had cured my broken heart and all of those Mm -hmm. types of things. And she said, well, if you're ever looking for another round of critique partners, I'd be happy to read it and give you some feedback. And I, at that moment, was actually about to send it to someone else, so I sent it to her. And she read it, and she said, here's what I think you should do with it, but also, I think you should let me represent this. I think I can sell it. Nice it was nice. At that point, I was proud of the manuscript, but I was like, I don't think you can because it's a single title chapter book and that's not a thing in the market. And she, having heard my whole post breakup self-improvement experience said, look, first of all, you know, now all the stages of the process of writing and how those feel, except you don't know how it feels to be on submission. So you'll learn that. But also if nothing else, putting yourself out there and your work out there, asking it to be rejected is an excellent lesson in getting over yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. Um, and she's right, right. There's nothing more vulnerable than every single stage of writing and publishing. <laughs> that sold me, and I let her send it out. Like so many other parts of publishing, it's an excellent lesson in just letting go of control. So she was right about that, and I was right that a single title chapter book isn't a thing. So Simon and Schuster books for young readers made an offer, but it was for four books. So then I had to figure out how to write three more and turn it into a series. And really it was in the process of doing that, that I realized I might want to be a real writer. And I would say midway through my first book contract is when I became an aspiring author. (laughs) Um, because writing those Anna Banana books made me want to write other things too. So at the time, I also began playing with picture book ideas. I began fleshing out the idea for what became my young adult novel, Always Forever Maybe, and started to focus on, okay, but if I were writing projects for me, not coming up with ideas for other authors, not reading submissions and deciding what would be great and working on those, what would I want to do? And being halfway through a book contract started me on that process.
0: It's interesting to me because it runs contrary to most of the narratives that I hear from my guests where they've been wanting to get published for 10 years or they have been aspiring to get this single project that they have invested a decade of their lives into. And I love that its it was almost a whim. And I also think it's interesting that you were initially writing out of a place of pain. Because mm. I know a lot of writers do. And I also am interested in... You were talking about the feedback loop of your own misery at the time. <laughs> and that is so true, not only in the context of emotional pain, but also just the level of anxiety that I feel a lot of creators have. Not all, but many of us do deal with anxiety. So many of that us. That feedback yes. loop, yes. And it can be useful if you direct it the way you directed yours, where you're like, I know I'm obsessing. I know that I have picked the wrong thing to loop back to over and over and over. So I'm going to direct it at something else. I'm going to direct it at this. I think that's so wonderful, one, that you were able to, but two, also that you realized what you were <laughs> doing, recognized that, and redirected. So can you talk about that a little bit, possibly? Just that taking that... um The personal moment, obviously, but also just that anxiety and and re-channeling it towards uh, creative work.
1: First of all, to go to what you were saying in the first part of that, even though I was not intending to be a writer and now I am, I'm approaching my work wanting to publish it, I still find that a lot of the process of writing is tricking myself into actually writing. Ugh, yeah. So with the first book, I maybe was tricking myself into it by thinking, well, I'm going to do something that's unpublishable because I never want to be published and therefore... I'm creating this safe space for myself. Mm-hmm. And now I often in the process of drafting have to find some way to trick myself into, well, I'm not really writing this chapter yet. I'm just sketching ideas for what the chapter would look like if I were writing it. Or, well, this isn't the real draft because this is in third person and my book is in first person, but I'm, I'll am i get down the ideas like this. And mm-hmm. that allows me to sort of write it down. Or, oh, well, this is not a real writing day because I'm just at the dog park with a clipboard rather than (laughs) in the library with my computer. So I still am tricking myself into writing all the time, even though I know on some level that I'm really doing this now. But so maybe that also speaks to anxiety. You know, I do a lot of school visits. The little ones always want to know, are these books true? Did the things happen? Mm -hmm. And I talk about how the events in the books didn't happen, but all of the emotions are true. I have felt all the things that these characters feel. One of the reasons I write fiction is that when there's a problem or a question or an idea that I want to work through that I don't know the answer to yet or don't know quite how I feel about yet. There's something so useful about working through a similar problem or question or idea through the voice of someone else, mm-hmm. right? Through the voice of a nine-year-old kid, through the voice of a 16-year-old, through the voice of a hippopotamus in a classroom. That gives me permission to fully explore the depth of feeling in a way that maybe I am not letting myself for myself. So that is both the vessel for my anxiety and a, a way to work through those things to turn through those things um, mm-hmm. in a safer place.
0: I agree I find myself when I am turning something over and over and over and examining it and I'm not getting answers you know I'm taking a knot and I'm making it worse and I know that's what I'm doing I'll often mm-hmm. be like okay you need to drop this and go either read a book or watch a movie or listen to some music like there's for me it's input rather than output will reset me but if it's so far along that I can't concentrate enough on whatever it is I'm trying to consume then yeah I do have to turn it into output or else I'm gonna sit there I don't know if you know much about raccoons but they will just hold an object and turn it and turn it and turn it and turn it and look at every angle of it Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's how I feel when I'm dealing with that emotion is that I'm just this raccoon that is trying to see something new in
1: the same object. I feel like I'm going to have raccoon nightmares now. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm staring and turning in their little hands. Oh, yes.
0: Raccoons are the most neurotic mammal out there besides us. But, yes, I mean, (laughs) it is. Oh, what a feeling. Coming up, how process can change from project to project and across age categories also considering the performance of reading aloud versus the narrative that is meant to be read silently. You talked about your YA, you've talked about your Anna Banana chapter books, and you also have children's picture books as well. So you're across the gamut. You have the children's market coverage
1: there. About the only thing you haven't done is a board book, is that correct? Yeah, and uh, I have a middle grade that's in a draft right now, but I haven't actually published middle grade if you separate middle grade and chapter books.
0: Yes, okay. Cool. But you're looking to fill that gap. (laughs) I am. I I want to do it all. That's awesome. So when you're covering these different age ranges, obviously your content is going to change and probably your voice as well to a degree. Mm -hmm. But what about your process? Does your process change when you're working on a
1: YA versus a picture book? That's a great question. So on the surface, I would say my books seem pretty different, especially across the age level. So my first picture book, The Teacher's Pet, is about a teacher who's so in love with the new class pet, he can't see all the trouble it's causing and the kids are going to have to... Happen and save the day. And Always Forever, my A novel is about obsessive teenage love, a romantic relationship that turns controlling and possessive and emotionally abusive. My YA has sex on the page and I do not curse in my picture books. But they do have some common themes. Almost everything that I write touches on friendship and love and animals. So I'm really interested in exploring sort of the depths and boundaries of Love and connections, whether it's intense friendship or parental love or the bond between a person and their pet or obsessive love or healthy romantic love. There's obviously a question in that that I'm continually turning over. And there's something about the voice and the humor in each of them that is me because ultimately I'm always writing to myself as the first reader. I have to please myself because no one else might ever read any of these things. But the process is definitely different, especially with picture books. For me specifically, one of the things that's different about writing picture books is that I never worked on picture books as an editor. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing one, my internal editor is not an experienced industry professional. And having no idea what I'm doing can be both terrifying and very freeing creatively because that experienced industry professional who knows way too much about the YA market really can get in the way during a messy first draft yep. of my other books. So one of the reasons I write picture books is that it can be pure writerly fun in a way that other things, I can't fully tap into that side always. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing with picture books and, and and that that's exciting. They feel very hit or miss to me. Either the concept works or it doesn't. Whereas with a novel, I feel like you start with a concept, but there's a lot of ways you can then massage that into something real. If your concept doesn't work in a picture book, your concept doesn't work. And you can also nail down that basic concept and plot arc in a weekend and then spend three months tinkering obsessively on a sentence level, which I love doing. I love thinking about sentence rhythm and whether to include or cut a single word or replace it with another word Mm -hmm. and spending all day on a single word when you're writing a novel can kind of bog you down. But when it's a picture book, that's actually not wasted time because there are probably fewer than 500 words in that book anyway. Each one of them matters in a different way. And another thing that's different is that during the process of writing a picture book, I'm reading sentences out loud frequently to myself or to another person because picture books are meant to be read aloud. Mm And in YA or chapter books, I sometimes read dialogue out loud to myself, but I never would sit down and read the whole book out loud. It feels to me like it matters more how it sounds in your head than how it matters read out loud, um, especially for the older books where they're less likely to be a read aloud. Another thing that's different about the process is I think I'm more pleasant when I'm writing a picture book (laughs) because I'm the kind of writer who really inhabits my character's emotions. So when I'm living inside a teenager's brain for months at a time, I can get pretty moody as well and have trouble leaving that behind. Whereas even if I have a moody character in a picture book, I've figured out their arc. There's more hijinks happening. So just mood-wise, it's a different experience. Chapter books, I would say that the first Anna Banana book, the process is not that different from writing a novel. For both of those, I think about an idea for a very long time before I start writing it. There's a long percolation period of up to a couple of years, but definitely a few months where I'm just, it's in the back of my head and I'm writing down pieces of maybe a little this, maybe a little that, but I'm not writing it yet. Again, sort of tricking myself into starting it. For Anna Banana now, I I just turned in revisions for book eight. So by now the characters and the voice and the pacing and a bunch of things like that are set and writing a new book in an ongoing series is a different challenge from beginning a new project, right? I don't have to figure out some of those things, but I do have to find out what's going to make this book still really fun and interesting for me to write Mm -hmm. when I've already explored these characters before. What new thing can I tap into? what new element can I add here? What will keep this fresh for me as a writer? Because if it's not fun and interesting for me, it's not going to be fun and interesting for a reader. Going back to the same characters again and again, that makes it a different challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. I can imagine. I know just from working on a <clears throat> fantasy series where I had two books mm-hmm. and then my first two books, there was a sequel to Not a Drop to Drink. It was supposed to be a standalone. And when they asked for two books, I balked a little bit. This being a, debut author with absolutely no sales bulking at HarperCollins. (laughs) And um, I was just like, I I don't want to go. This world is so small. I don't want to go back to it and explore more, that book won't be good, right? And so I told my agent, I was like, what if we pitched it that it takes place 10 years later and the little girl is mm -hmm. the main character and she's a teenager? My agent was like, yeah, let's go for it. And for my sequel to Given to the Sea, the fantasy, what I did was, in order to keep it fresh for me, in the first book, there are four POVs. Two of them are in Mm -hmm. first person and two are in third. And for the second Mm. book, I flipped it so that my characters that previously had third person now had first and vice versa. And I added uh, two more POVs, if you can believe that. I ended up with... Having more fun and exploring the world and the characters more, because obviously with third person and first person, you're in a different place mentally with your characters. So that for me was how I kept those going. But I've only had the experience of writing across the sequel. So what's Mm. that like when you're working on a, a longer stretch? Like how do you keep it fresh for yourself but also for your readers are you introducing new characters or are you putting bigger changes into the world of your characters that you already have established what's the process there
1: sometimes there are new characters and each book has a new situation but for me there there are two tricks the first thing is that I really have to figure out what deeply emotionally matters to me in this chapter book Anna Banana book one she's had a fight with a friend and we talked about how I had just gone through a breakup so cl- that one's pretty clear mm-hmm. um in the second book Anna Banana and the monkey in the middle she's on a class trip to the zoo with her two best friends and she's continuously feeling like they want different things from her and she can't satisfy both of them, let alone also satisfying herself in that process. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going on a class trip to the zoos with my friends now, but I do have experiences where there are friends or family members or professionally where people want conflicting things from me and I can't satisfy everyone in that, let alone what do I myself want? So, but, you know, thinking about how I can relate to that as an adult now And then putting it into an appropriate thing for those characters or, you know, book four, Anna Banana and the Puppy Parade. Anna and her friends are entering her dog Banana in a local dog competition. And they have differing ideas about how Banana should be presented there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, On the one hand, wants to do this thing with her friends, and on the other hand, feels like, "Hey, wait a minute, she's my dog, so my ideas should be prioritized here." And also, and she starts to feel jealous about the ownership that they feel. And you know,
0: you know. So that was about. So that book is about (laughs) (laughs) co-authoring.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but you know, as an adult, I've had moments where I want to do things where people are super included in my life or whatever. But then sometimes it then starts to cross a boundary that you've invited people to cross. Right. Um, and how do you deal with that? So, so I try to think about what's this thing that I have haven't thought about enough directly that I can explore here through this conflict that the third graders are having. So really finding that emotional thing that keeps it relevant for me in the moment that I'm writing it. But then my other trick is that I actually started writing picture books in between Anna Banana Books that first year when I sold the first book and I had to revise the first book and write three more within 12 months. Mm -hmm. And that was after and I was working full time. And being an editor is not a nine to five job, right? That's a job that will take all of your already so I was getting up early writing for 45 minutes before work every day spending some time on the weekends but just you know I was on a what for me was a breakneck schedule at the time trying to write these books quickly and I had sort of three months to draft and revise one and then I needed to go to the next one and could not get to the end and then start right in on the next book and I felt like what I actually really needed as a palate cleanser was to think about another book So that's when I started writing picture books because you can think of that concept pretty completely in a shorter period of time, fully immerse myself in this other plot and these other characters, but not have to spend weeks leading up to that. I've never attempted a picture book,
0: but I feel from every picture book author that I've spoken to, there is this great frustration about the misunderstanding of how much work it takes to produce four to 500 words. Most people look at those picture books, I can't tell you how many and God bless them. They're usually parents, but they're like, well, I'm going to write a picture book. I love this book that I read to my kid and I can do that. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. The amount of work, as you were saying, that you will spend three or four hours going back. To one Mm -hmm. sentence to change one word. And to me, because as you were saying, picture books are meant to be read aloud, almost performed. And And to me, repeatedly, yes. And they also, in some ways, they carry that tradition of oral storytelling where Mm -hmm. I can recite click, clack, move for you. Like, I could do it right now. And I could even tell you where the page breaks are just because I have that muscle memory in my hand from turning the page. Same thing with Chicka Chicka Boom
1: Boom. Like, I could do the whole freaking book. So it's like page breaks matter, right? That's a tool we don't have in writing novels or chapter books. You add suspense. You can use it for humor. It's a whole different
0: tool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of thing where I feel like you have to have so much background in performance almost or at least Mm -hmm. have heard enough reading done or, I think, be very familiar with poetry and how poetry Mm -hmm. works in order to be able to execute proper picture book. It's just more of an observation than a question. It's something that I come across often people not understanding the great amount of talent and art <laughs> that goes into a picture book.
1: I think that my background in onstage storytelling has led most smoothly into essay writing because some of the stories I've told on stage have become essays mm-hmm. and into picture books because you're right, there's something about the beats and the anticipation of audience reaction and the permission you're giving the audience to react in certain ways or mm-hmm. requesting of them that is closer to live performance than, than other forms of writing are.
0: Mm-hmm. And live performances, I'll bring it up since you're obviously familiar, when often authors are asked to do a reading, and I don't mind at all because I do speak in public often and I don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. But you do have to know when people are going to laugh, mm-hmm. how people are going to react, yeah you have to be aware of all those things because there's going to be a reaction and you need to pause. You can't squash the laugh. You know, you got to let them react before you continue on. And a lot of Mm -hmm. authors don't have that, um, not necessarily stage presence, but they don't have that awareness of the audience because they're not trained in that way. So when they go up to do a reading, I mean, I've seen some very poor author readings. Again, just an observation. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's something that... Authors who aren't comfortable with it need to be sure that they are comfortable saying, no, I'm not going to do a reading because I'm not good at it. Like You could even ask someone else to do it for you, I think, if you don't (laughs) perform
1: well. I've actually been to readings or book launches where where that's what happened, where somebody else read from the book or where there was no reading at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there are so many things we ask authors to do that are not in our skill set of what we're good at is writing books. We're asked to do all sorts of other kinds of marketing and outreach and performance and readings and writing other things to support the publication of the book. From my editor days, I've always known you're not doing your book or yourself any favors by forcing yourself to do promotional stuff that doesn't work for you. Mm -hmm. And so I've always tried to really focus on what will be fun for me? What will be worth it even if no books are sold? What kind of thing do I want to go out there and do, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of what social media I choose, what kinds of events I say yes to, what's going to speak to my strengths. And I'm lucky to be someone who's comfortable performing. That's not every author. And if you're an author and that's not you, that's fine. There are other ways you can be part of your book's promotion without doing 200 school visits.
0: Yep. Well, and you mentioned school visits. also just, as a children's author, when you go up to middle grade or YA, you are an entertainer. More mm-hmm. often than not, when you go up on that stage and, and that's something that I have just become very aware of, because I worked in high school for like 14 years. And so it's like, you might not learn something from me today, but God damn it, I'm going to entertain you, you know, it's
1: mm-hmm. like, I will I think- make you look at me. I've had several conversations with um, author friends who are male or female about the different experience of who you are when you go into a school and what audiences expect with you. So Mm -hmm. we were talking about being funny and knowing when to pause for laughs. There's also you need to know that children of a certain age don't necessarily expect the woman standing up in front of their classroom to be funny. Right. But they do expect certain men coming up in front of their classroom to be funny, right? There's a different, um, I think, audiences of all levels give men credit for being funnier than they are.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. They expect women to be taskmasters and the teacher and things like that in school rather than the person who's entertaining them. And I've learned when I do younger school visits, one of the things I do early on is I read them a book that I wrote at age four. Some audiences, when I did this the first several times, would, would just laugh automatically and others wouldn't at all. And I started before I read the picture book. Every time I would say, you know, it isn't always polite to laugh at people, but if you think this is funny, it's okay to laugh. Mm-hmm. And now that I say that before I read it, every single audience laughs uproariously. Mm-hmm. They needed permission. They needed to know what I'm doing here is being funny and then it's funny to them.
0: It's very true because I have been into classrooms and into school visits and auditoriums before where the person that introduced me or the staff had, like, come down really hard on the kids and been like, you will listen to her and you will be respectful and you will pay attention and just, like, really squished them. And then I walk in there and I'm like, hey, kids, and I tell a joke about Mom <laughs> incest, and they're like, oh, and they have this look on their face, and they're like, oh my god, are we? Sp- we want to laugh, but we're not allowed. We were told not to laugh, you know. And I'm just like, people have told me before. What I do when I'm in front of the high schoolers is more like stand up than anything else. And I'm like, you know what? That's fine. All I want them to do is to relate to me and interact with me. And if that makes you go pick up my book, cool. If not, whatever. It's like you you paid me to show up and entertain them, and I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. The greatest treasure, a most dangerous magic. Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But When her mother, Delia, falls to her death during a show, she leaves behind a dangerous inheritance that forces Jenny into a frightening new reality. Her life now interrupted by the terrors only Delia could see. As the visions around Jenny grow stronger and her magical legacy becomes even more menacing, She's not sure who she can trust. And if she fails to secure Delia's ancient secret, Jenny could lose everyone she holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. So you also write for magazines, and those are featuring content aimed at authors to help them hone their craft or refine their process. So can you talk a little bit about writing for writers? How do you approach that as
1: opposed to writing fiction? With those pieces, I'm really writing to amuse myself first as well. I love talking about craft, and I love hearing other writers talk about their approach to craft, to drafting, to revising, because each writer is different, and each book is different, and hearing how other writers approach what they're doing always gets me inspired and eager to dig back in myself, whether I want to try their techniques or whether I would never approach my work the way that they approach theirs, but even thinking about that helps me solidify what I'm trying to do with with my work. Writing a short piece about writing is a really fun challenge for me. And it gives me um, a limited project to accomplish and turn in and get paid for on a deadline that I can meet in the midst of the much longer process of writing novels or even picture books. And it's also a really excellent and productive way for me to procrastinate. Mm-hmm. Um, than whatever I'm supposed to be writing because I believe really strongly in cheating on my main writing project with side projects nice. because that's how I keep my brain excited. Having multiple projects going on at once in various stages means that I'm usually going to have at least one project that I'm in a good and exciting part of which helps remind me what I like about writing and why I'm doing it. When my main focus needs to be on a project that's in a phase that I feel like quitting and can't remember why I even thought it was a good idea to start writing in the first place. Yep,
0: I agree so completely when you, especially when it's a novel. When you're working on a novel and you hit that three quarters of the way through when Mm -hmm. screw this piece of work, it is terrible. Why did I ever think this was a good idea? I have ruined a perfectly usable concept. (laughs) And it's just like, you know what, I I need to write this essay for this writer's digest. I'll, I'll go
1: do that. And it is a palate cleanser it's also almost a pep talk to myself in that writing about writing makes me feel like I know how to write. It forces Mm. me to articulate the things that I have figured out work for me and the things that don't work for me. And also when you write a piece for other writers, you write it with a somewhat authoritative voice. And that makes me feel like an authority. I mean, we were just talking about writing to figure out how you feel about a certain emotion or working through a certain problem. And there's extent to which I write about writing in order to figure out how I write, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By writing about writing, I figure out how to write. And I used to give a lot of talks to writers about writing and revision when I was an editor speaking at conferences. So in some ways, it's also going back to those editor roots, but now also informed by my years of writing perspective I never get to tell people what to do anymore I don't get to suggest things they might want to consider to improve their manuscripts or improve their lives and I miss that I miss getting to tell people what to do and so this scratches that itch for me too
0: that's really cool and I think it also you're also writing to find out what you know absolutely you already know these things right It, it does remind you that you are an expert in your field and so when you go back to that novel
1: it's like I am a novelist novel You're going to listen to me. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, we've talked earlier about anxiety and spinning and getting yourself in a rut and needing to work through that. And I think that mental game of feeling like you don't know what you're doing as a writer, because with each book, we actually don't know what we're doing. right? Um, But then writing down what I do know and having to articulate that for other writers to help them through their process also really helps me through mine. So it's it's entirely self-serving.
0: Yeah, it's true, though. I I love having multiple projects going because for example this past summer i was working on a few different things and one of them was a novel that was not contracted i was just writing for myself there's no Mm -hmm. uh, paycheck coming down the line and and that in some ways gives me less incentive to work on it especially when i hit a tough spot and i can't do it anymore well, I was hired yeah. to work for a cool. company. I'm writing for box. So it was one of those things where I was asked to come onto this project. I was asked to work on this project. That work was easier for me because I would sit down and I'm like, well, they want me to work on this. Yeah. You know, this is someone saying we wanted you to work on this project. So therefore, I walk into it, as you were saying, feeling like an authority And like, Mm -hmm. I can do this. Whereas when it's something, a project that I've sat out for myself, it's like, no one believes in this except me. And Mm -hmm.
1: that's tough. Yeah. And even if you have a great writing day, it's not the same as having accomplished and finished something. It's not even the same as having sat through a meeting and finished the meeting. the, The writing life is sort of this endless, amorphous, not complete thing. And you can work for two years on something and then have to set it aside and it becomes nothing. So having some shorter deadlines in there where it becomes something and it gets published and I get $200 in the mail helps a lot.
0: I am reading Moby Dick right now. And there was this one. Yes. I I, I love projects that don't end. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I was reading, I was reading this because I felt like it was time. But also it's like once I started reading it and I figured out what Melville's doing, I really enjoyed it. But there are chapters where he is actually, as Melville, addressing the audience and talking about things like whaling. So I was on this chapter where he was talking about, even if I made this entire book just about history of whaling, it would not mm. cover whaling. You really have to understand whaling. And then he said, just as this book is only a draught, it's a draught of a draught, mm. And and I'm like, this is a big-ass book, man. And he's just like, no, it's a draught of a draught. And then he says, oh, time, oh, wow. patience, oh, paycheck. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and I did. I was just like, wow, you just like summed it up right there. You're like, what I, what I have actually produced for you, this final project, this novel that you can buy on the bookshelf is just a drop of what was in my head. And it's in front of you because I needed the money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm like, if nothing else, Moby Dick has taught me that. (laughs) Let's talk further about your essays. You have had pieces published in the New York Times, which is super cool. I would think kind of hard to get into. So if you could talk a little bit about publishing process when you're working
1: as a freelancer at that level, trying
0: to break in uh, New York Times. For
1: children's books and young adults, the advice I would always give and many other people do too is to know the market, but don't try to write to the market, mm-hmm. right? It can't be chasing trends with your novel that takes you a year to write. And then also takes two years to get used to get published after it's been bought by the publishing company. And also what most editors want there from a novelist is the book that only that person could have written. So know your market, but don't write to the market mm-hmm. for writing for The New York Times or any magazine or newspaper, my approach for those essays and nonfiction pieces is the opposite. You want to learn the market that you're aiming to publish into, and you want to write directly for it. Target a specific publication target a specific section of that publication Mm -hmm. and learn the tone of the kind of pieces you want to be placing to publish and tailor them very specifically to fit that publication. My first New York Times piece was actually the first thing I ever published. It came out about six months before the first Anna Banana book. And it was the first essay I had pitched anywhere. So I had some beginner's luck there, but also I'm a really strong believer in aiming high Mm -hmm. and not self-rejecting which is something that a lot of people do, self-rejecting by not even submitting in the first place. These publications are all looking for writers. They have to put out a lot of content, Why shouldn't you be one of the writers who's publishing with them? And also as a writer, if you're not getting rejections, then you're not taking enough risks or you're not putting yourself out there often enough, or you're not aiming as high as you should, Mm -hmm. especially as a freelancer for these kinds of pieces. And the more rejection you get, the easier receiving them feels. So that can be really useful too for when your novel gets rejected by 18 different publishers. So the New York Times had a section called Opinionator that I wanted to write for because I read it. So I read every single essay that they were publishing and I thought about what I could fit that would fit what they seemed to be looking for. And then I Googled, Google is your friend. You find the editor's names and their contact info and their submission guidelines that are posted online and follow them exactly. Also, unlike with book publishing, you be prepared to follow up on pitches regularly, even if they say, no response is a non-response, I still follow up in two weeks and say, if I haven't heard from you by X date, I will move on elsewhere, but just wanted to check in on this, right? And I've actually had those nudges result in pieces being published. Don't self-reject, put stuff out there and really specifically aim for a specific publication and write what it seems that they're looking for. I do find that the publication of these kinds of pieces is much more vulnerable than publishing even vulnerable books. Even if you know better than to read the comments, um, (laughs) there are people, many more people will find you and volunteer what they think Mm -hmm. through nice and nasty emails and DMs and et cetera. So you really do have to, have a thick skin for that. I lately have had to ask myself whether I want to put myself out there like that and why, what's the Mm -hmm. point? So Mm -hmm. I wrote a very honest and vulnerable essay about my um, young adult novel, Always Forever Maybe, and about how the story in that novel is not my story, but there are parallels to a time when I also fell hard and sat fast for somebody that I should have been safe with, but was not. Mm -hmm. And to a time in my life when trusting someone else meant repudiating my own best instincts. And how when I look back at the most damaging moments in that teenage relationship, my first instinct is still to blame myself. Mm-hmm, when I mm-hmm. think about the things that he said or he did, I feel guilt and I feel embarrassment and humiliation and shame. And I think I should have known better. I shouldn't have put up with any of that. I should have walked away sooner and I shouldn't have still wanted him to want me. Right. And it took me years to add I shouldn't have needed to protect myself from someone that I loved. Right. And It is only when I hear other people's stories on similar themes that I have the distance to feel outrage, Mm -hmm. which is why I wrote that book, because other people's stories have the power to help us understand our own and sometimes to change the narrative, which I will happily talk about in detail on panels or podcasts and at book events. But do I need to open myself up by publishing it in a national newspaper? Maybe someday I will, but for now... I have put that essay aside and I'm letting the book speak for itself. And I'm talking about those things in spaces that feel safer to me, such Mm -hmm. as within the YA community. Though I'll also say, um, like I said, the first thing I published was an essay with the New York Times. Um, It's an essay about my father, sort of, but really it's about some pet geese that we have had when I was growing up Mm -hmm. um and I did read the comments for that I felt in an okay place for that it's still one of my favorite reviews of anything I've ever gotten that I've written is a comment on that story that says something like the author says the geese are mean and dumb but has she learned to fly she's the dumb one (laughs) and I just (laughs) you know what sir Thank you. (laughs) It just really was like, it just prepared me for everything about Goodreads and how like people bring what they bring to whatever you've written, right? That's half of the fun of a writer is I'm controlling what's on the page, but the reader's interaction with it is their own. And that's amazing. And everything you write is not for every reader. And if that's what that person got from that essay. Okay. And excuse my ableist language there with the use of the word dumb. That was his quote, not mine. That did help thicken my skin. So when I'm writing essays like this, I'm aiming high when I do them and I'm working through something I need to work through. 2018, 2019, these years have felt more vulnerable to me and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing more fiction than nonfiction for that reason. That guy sounds really upset that he can't fly yeah and upset that i can't fly i I mean what what a weird reaction
0: but you're right it does it does prepare (laughs) you for just about anything when you put yourself out there like that people feel comfortable then Mm -hmm. approaching you on that level in my first book not a drop to drink i have a main character whose mother is very strict with her and very stern in that she is teaching her how to survive in this world where it's a brutal Mm -hmm. world and i had a very wonderful question I was very recently, I was out of high school and one of my uh, audience members asked, why doesn't her mother ever tell her she loves her? That's a great question. I love it. It's like, she does love her. She loves her very much. That's why she's teaching her to survive. To her mind, this mother, it's more useful for me to teach you how to, you know, load a gun than it is for me to tell you that I love you, right? And, and so it's like, I'm explaining this to the kids and then this other girl raises her hand and she says, does your mother love you? <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> That's amazing. I'm like, well, I mean, yes. (laughs) Even when it's fiction, you are putting yourself out there. And people will cross boundaries and say things to you that perhaps they would not to a professional that doesn't deal with emotions so much Mm -hmm. uh, as
1: part of their business. So you do have to be prepared for that. It's very true. Yes. Have you found that people's reactions to the parents in your novel are more extreme than their reactions to the main characters? Typically, Yeah. There's always a lot of critique of their parenting. Yes.
0: And I have that
1: for always forever, maybe too. The the mom in this novel reacts stronger elicits stronger reactions than the main character mm-hmm. with all the choices mm-hmm. she's making. Which I think says so much it says so much about the reader to me. hmm I'm not putting the mom out there as an example of how one should be a parent. Right. That's just the mother she has. Yes. <laughs> but,
0: well, and see that's the thing. I think people, especially of a certain generation, expect Young adult books to be didactic and they are Mm. not. And so I think when you, I think that's the reaction that I'm seeing most of the time. Tell us what is up next for you. I know you've got kind of a full slate
1: coming up here. Yeah, I've got a bunch of things. My second picture book, Watch Out for Wolf, which is illustrated by Charles Santoso, comes out on April 16th. You know, writing picture books, half of it's not yours. You leave space in the story for an illustrator to tell the visual story. Mm -hmm. And That is so much fun. When we talked about the difference between writing picture books and other things, picture books are more fun in the end, they just are. Anna Banana Book Eight comes out in November. And wow. I'm working on a second one. This one is a thriller with an intense female friendship at its center. Cool. Um, and I'm hoping it will come out in 2020. And I have a piece in the February issue of the Writer Magazine called Strive to Fail, which is full of counterintuitive writing goals like aim lower and seek rejection and read terrible books. My best terrible advice for writers is in that issue.
0: I loved it. I especially loved, and you brought it up here again, your comments about self-rejection. Is it Wayne Gretzky? Wayne Gretzky said, you'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take.
1: Mm -hmm. I think a great attitude in publishing, whether it's pitching freelance articles or whether it's submitting to agents or your book going out on wider submission to editors – is to actually celebrate every rejection. Because yeah. each rejection that you get not only means you're putting it out there, it also means that the wrong editor and the wrong publisher and the wrong publication for your piece have eliminated themselves from the running. And what you want is the editor and the publication and the publisher that really get what you're trying to do and love it and will put it out there the right way. So when the wrong ones help you by turning the piece down, great. Then you're that much closer to finding the right place to publish your work. That's a wonderful way of looking at it. I love it.
0: Okay, last thing, tell us where people can
1: find you online. I am on Instagram and Twitter at at Anika Risi, A-N-I-C-A-R-I-S-S-I. And I'm less active on Facebook and Tumblr, but you can also find me there or on my website, which is AnikaRisi.com.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Korbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.